Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal, and with me in the studios today are Dr. Holly Ulbrich, formerly of Clemson University and currently co-president of the South Carolina League of Women Voters, and Dr. Sheila Haney, who is the author of a new book, A History of the League of Women Voters of South Carolina, 1920-2020. Ladies, both of you, welcome to the journal today. Thank you. Thank you. 2020 is a year most of us would like to forget, but for the women's suffrage movement and for those who have pushed for rights for women, equal rights for women, 2020 was a very important year, was it not? Hi, this is Holly Ulbrich. It's the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage, and particularly important to me because my great-grandmother marched for women's suffrage about five years before that. Good for her. Of course, we're talking about now about the, the ratification of the 19th mm-hmm. Amendment. But that's just part of the story because here in South Carolina, the quest for women's suffrage began earlier than that, did it not, Holly? Yes, it did. It began uh, with the suffrage movement, which was surprisingly active in South Carolina, particularly in the early part of the 20th century with the uh, the. Uh, women's suffrage clubs and other organizations, and lots of efforts to get get people to uh, to vote to ratify once the amendment was passed, but also lobbying Congress to get it passed. That was not easy because South Carolina was pretty much an old boy <laughs> network, um, to to say the least. And before there was. The League of Women Voters, there was something called the South Carolina Equal Suffrage League. Yes. And would either one of you want to talk a little bit about that? Because it's interesting how at the turn of the last century, women began to organize, even here in South Carolina, for the right to vote. Well, I think that that, um, that 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 organization came out of concern about women's issues, about women's property rights, the right to divorce, the right to their earnings, because it, like most states, it, you were basically, once you got married, property of your husband. And, they, and early on, the movement nationally and in South Carolina realized if women were going to have any rights of their own, any protections, they were going to have to ri- have the right to vote, because otherwise there was no reason for legislation legislators to listen to them. In, in some of the work that I have done and, and, and looking at, at your work as well, women sometimes started as a literary club mm-hmm. and then, for example, in Spartanburg and then morph into women's rights because those in, an, in authority were suspicious of the women's rights movement. Many women were included in that group. Uh, it was not uh, uncommon for um, the struggle to not only be with males, but uh, also with females that just weren't—they were housewives and they had other issues. So the idea of forming a statewide organization comes with the South Carolina Equal Suffrage League, but then with the passage of the 19th Amendment, the adoption of the 19th Amendment. Um, and actually, South Carolina, at least South Carolina women, one woman, Miss Pollitzer, had something to do with Tennessee being the last state to ratify the amendment, did she not? Yeah, that's a pretty dramatic story of how one vote by one freshman legislator influenced by his mom, who was a an, an educated woman who ran a farm and said, my farm hands can vote and I can't. That doesn't make much sense. So, yeah, that, that, that was dramatic. Unfortunately, South Carolina didn't get around to ratifying the 19th Amendment until we were approaching its 50th anniversary and the League of Women Voters called attention to it and they said, oh, yeah, I guess we should do that. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, so South it didn't make any difference, but South Carolina officially ratified uh, the 19th Amendment in 1969. Yes. Um, and present at that signing was one of the state's early uh, suffrage leaders, uh, Miss Eulalie Sally. And she's quite a, she was quite a character. <laughs> right, uh, right, right, surely. Right. Sheila. This is um, a lady who flew on a crop duster wing and distributed leaflets and had um, 
you know, a lot of gut. <laughs> she just really did what was necessary. She took money out of her husband's pocket so mm-hmm. that she and another woman uh, made their way to a woman's event and uh, at his expense. <laughs> and she subsequently founded her own real estate firm, and it's still very po- prominent true. in Aiken County. <laughs> Isn't that something? Well, she gets a lot of press, but we know now because of celebrations here in in Columbia, particularly at with the city and with the Historic Columbia Foundation, there were other women who, quite frankly, were just as active in uh, the women's suffrage movement. In fact, the founder of uh, the Columbia League of Women Voters, Miss Ida Sally Reamer, uh, was mm-hmm. quite an individual in, in her in her own right, and all of these women were very determined women. Miss Reamer, for example, had several degrees. Uh, she even went to law school, where she finished first in her class. In fact, the year she graduated from law school, the two top graduates were women. But in terms of the officers of the law school students, she was the secretary. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) No surprise. Well, you know, people think of the League of Women Voters as, as just dealing with voting, but at least in the Columbia League and the State League, there were issues more than just than just voting. Um, you've already mentioned property rights. Mm-hmm. That that was a very important issue. The age of consent in order to get married in South Carolina at that time, the age of consent was fourteen. Mm-hmm. A fourteen-year-old girl could be married. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the things that has appealed to me is that it's a multi-topic. Uh, organization. We have not one thrust, but spiraling, and I like to use that word, um, again and again, year after year, nationally, state level, and local. We work with uh, as disparate uh, an array of topics as education, um, environment, you know, uh, multiple issues that uh, should whet the appetite of any prospective member. At the same time, though, the voting has always been central to us and protecting the electoral process. And in, in recent years, because of efforts at voter suppression and disagreements over voting equipment and disagreements over absentee balloting and balloting early voting, we've come back to focus pretty and redistricting all those issues related to elections. That's that's where the league is unique. There are other people that we work with on the environment, people we work mm-hmm. with on education. But we seem to have almost unique ownership of the the protecting democracy, good government that territory. Uh, that interestingly and sadly was was a major issue in the hundredth anniversary year of the League of Women Voters. Indeed. Now, as organizations look back at their history, and uh, Sheila, in your your book, you 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 confront this. When the League of Women Voters was formed, it was really the League of Women of White Women Voters. That's right, right. And really, um, it was a class issue as well. Um, we have a um, unique capacity to appeal to multi issues. We are uh, nonpartisan, which is another attraction and unique. I think most uh, organizations of women or men, for that matter, have issues that may not be as long-lasting. Uh, but uh, you know, in 1920, the same concerns are again that word spiraling into everything we do here in in um, this century. Well, when when did the league? address the issue of race. 
I would say in the 1950s, and I think Sheila would agree with that, Harriet Simons, the, the, the league went dormant for a while during the Depression mm-hmm. and the war. And when it revived, Harriet Simons was the first president of the newly reconstituted league from 1951 to 1955. She was a strong proponent of integrating the Charleston League. And uh, Brown versus Board of Education came up on her watch, and they wanted to shut down the public schools in order to avoid desegregation. And the league lobbied very hard on behalf of public education and integration. So that's what, and it, it showed up at other times. In 1972, the league was agitating to take the Confederate flag off the, the state house because the celebration of the 100th anniversary of the Civil War was over, uh, and it continues to be a focus of the league at all levels to be inclusive of, of we, we, we admitted men as full members. I can't remember exactly the year, but that we have a number of male members. Uh, we try to make sure that, that people are not kept from joining because of the dues and other expenses associated with it. So it's inclusive in a lot of respects, but race obviously is a big issue in South Carolina. And we confronted it in numerous times, but particularly starting in the 1950s. Well, I was going to ask you about you still call the League of Women Voters, but you do you do have male members. You do? I, yes, I, I I was asked that once at a speech, and I said, you know, when I got married in the '60s, it was common to take your husband's name, as I did, uh, but I think the League would like to keep its maiden name. <laughs> <laughs> All right, point 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 made. Uh, uh, but going going back to how. Uh, South Carolinians in 1920-21 responded to women getting the right to vote. The the men who were still running South Carolina in the 1920s, um, they couldn't stop women from getting the right to vote. Uh, And women did sign up. Um, But they excluded them from juries because they thought women were too delicate to sit on juries and might learn things that they shouldn't. Is that not right, uh, Holly? Yes. Uh, that was a, a real battle for the league. And then they, they sort of relented to saying, well, you know, uh, women can't be required to serve on juries and and they can be excused for a variety of reasons. But the league pressed on and we're now a fully equal part of, of juries. And, you know, if I were going to be tried God forbid, by a jury of my peers, I would hope that some of my peers would be women because they do bring a different perspective and frequently a very thoughtful perspective. So, you know, if we're all citizens, then we also ought to have equal civic obligations, and one of those is to serve on juries. And, of course, in this state, that did not happen until 1967. Yes. I mean, that's... It was the league that that lobbied for that, along with other organizations. AAUW was one, I know. Mm -hmm. American Association of University Women. Yes, thank you. (laughs) So, you know, uh, and of course, this was coming at the same time of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And in terms of including persons of color on on juries, how could you not include as, as the state constitution says a jury of one's peers uh, without having women on the juries. And without having African-Americans and, and now Hispanics on juries, because we're, and particularly, uh, it's, not, it's, it's true that men are more often arrested than women, but uh, blacks and Hispanics are, are arrested at a higher rate than, than, than uh, white people. So I think we need to have more emphasis on including people of color in the jury. What are the what are the issues now that that, that the league is dealing with here in in twenty twenty one? We still are concerned with voting rights and should be. Uh, we are, um, in addition, um, making inroads into environmental issues. Uh, that will probably always be an issue, as were the voting rights. Um, People get smarter and they find clever ways to avoid inclusion. And uh, I've been proud to be a league member because not only did we have racial, we also had uh, professional career and uh, class inclusion. Uh, Men, I remember hearing in 
Connecticut, probably in a national conference of league, that they even had a um, a state president as a male, and uh, so it's it's done. Uh, we have been very open to membership and encouraged it. Uh, sometimes not as fervently as we could have in some areas of the state and the nation. But uh, nonetheless, it's there. Uh, I think that's important and uh, something I'm very proud of in my leadership and experience. Uh, can I add something from that standpoint of being state co-president? We're very much focused this year on voting issues. The pandemic offered us a great experiment in making voting more accessible in terms of uh, no excuse, absentee voting, satellite locations, drop boxes, uh, a number of things that, that were greatly appreciated by citizens regardless of, the, of their party affiliation. And we're hoping very much to persuade the, the general Assembly to extend those practices in the future. The lines were shorter. Uh, people were very happy with the process, and the turn the turnout was fantastic. And the party division was pretty much the same as it was in a lower turnout election. So it's not a partisan issue; it's a voter access issue. Well, having having voted in, in Lexington County, and I applied for my wife and I for absentee ballot, and then we decided that uh, we wanted to deliver it in person to the to the vote voting office which was a, a former grocery store uh, <laughs> in down in downtown Lexington but it was absolutely incredible the organization this was early in the election process for after we'd gotten our absentee ballots and the line stretched around the building yeah, well, it, 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 it was really appreciated. And I also worked at the polls, as did my oldest daughter and my 16-year-old granddaughter. And it was a, I, I can testify, I don't know about any place else, but in South Carolina, the elections were run smoothly, the, the equipment functioned well, and it was a very well-run election. Ladies, I need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Dr. Holly Ulbrich and Dr. Sheila Haney about the League of Women Voters celebrating its 100th anniversary. Holly, you mentioned, obviously, in, in 2020 being an election year, the League was, was focusing on uh, the, electro, the electoral process. But o over the course of time, you people have talked about health issues, uh, education. Early on, the health one of the health issues was uh, vaccinations. Mm -hmm. Still uh, is. <laughs> okay. Well, how? Well, talk about that because that obviously in uh, the continuation of our pandemic, vaccination is an issue. Is the league doing something in terms of education concerning vaccinations? Not specifically vaccinations. No, our, 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 I would say our biggest number one healthcare issue is is to try to get expanded Medicaid. Uh, a couple of other states have just done that, um, but uh, I'm not sure that there's anything we can say about vaccinations that lots of folks uh, both at the state and national level are, are advertising uh, is, is really important. Uh, I would, you know, in terms of important issues, I, if I, you know, my mind going back, one of the ones we played a really big role in was constitutional revision in the in the uh, late '60s, and particularly the early '70s, and that's that's kind of a good government issue. So again, the league was a logical group to do that, although we had a number of partners, including legal organizations. So it, the, the emphasis on those issues changes from decade to decade. Healthcare is, because there's so many people that are interested in health, we tend to leave that to the people who have the expertise in health and to focus on the things we have expertise in, which is voting in good government. Things like ethics reform, regulatory reform, judicial selection process, things like that. Local government. Local. Oh, home rule is one of my favorite things in the whole world. <laughs> well, let's you know, let's let's talk about that because one of the things that has happened here in South Carolina since more or less home rule came about in the nineteen seventies. In the nineteen nineteen seventy four, I believe. Seventy four, seventy five. Yeah, in the nineteen seventies, there has been a, a gradual chipping away over the last forty years of home rule authority. 
Well, they never got much to begin with. <laughs> okay, well, I, and the, the, the legislative delegations are not exactly home rule. <laughs> let, let's just talk about what home rule means. I mean, because seriously, if that's an issue for the league, how do you go about explaining to people, oh, well, we can elect our mayor. Okay, and we actually have a home rule issue that just arose in the last week in our newest league in York County. There is a public park with Confederate flags. This is public property. It's local public property. They want to know how they go about as a, a, a fledgling league uh, protesting and trying to get that to change. And we say, well, that's a home rule issue. That Heritage Act has nothing to do with that because it's not, it's 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 not something that's been there forever. It's not a, it's not a state institution. So. Under home rule, you should be able to challenge the presence of those 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 flags. But there's so many other issues. I mean, we have commissions, like election commissions, that are appointed by the General Assembly, and yet they're funded by the county council. That's not home rule. It's very difficult for cities to annex and expand because cities had powers pre-existing to the Constitution, the 1895 Constitution that the legislature couldn't find a way to undo. So they limit their ability to annex and consolidate and become larger. So we have no cities on paper that are really big. I think Greenville has a, a... Population within the city of about sixty thousand. It's it's a it's a quarter of a million people metropolitan area. So it, you know this it, it's it's really hampered local governments. And if you compare it to North Carolina, where the annexation law says, well, if you're of urban density and you're next to a city, then the city gives you ninety days notice and said, welcome home. Uh, so they have probably the most open annexation process, and consequently, they have some really big cities. Charlotte being the most noted, but also Asheville and Greensboro and Raleigh, Durham, and so forth. So, so there's, there's, you know, it's really handicapped the development of cities as service providers in a growing economy. Well, Holly, you, you mentioned one of uh, the things that I have done some work with, and that is you talk about boards and commissions and government. And back when there was a state reorganization commission under Governor Carol Campbell, mm -hmm. uh, I was a member of that commission. And one of the first things we asked the Secretary of State, how many commissions and boards, independent boards and commissions, do we have in the state of South Carolina? Nobody knew. <laughs> Literally, nobody knew. Uh, because over the years, you had water commissions, sewer commissions, you had whatever. Because under the 1895 Constitution, states couldn't do, I mean, excuse me, cities couldn't do certain things. So you had to create a commission mm -hmm. in order to build a city hospital. Yeah, special districts. <laughs> yeah, special. Special, district, special purpose districts. And to this day, we don't know how many of them there are. Well, <laughs> you would think with computers we could find out, don't you? You would. I, possibly there are people interested in not knowing. <laughs> but, it, but, but I, you know, let's talk about how that really hinders local government. Well, it's very difficult for municipalities to annex when they're surrounded by special purpose districts that are offering fire protection, um, water and sewer, uh, electric utilities. Those are the, those are the most common ones. Uh, and, and so it takes a lot of negotiation for the city to take on those services. The other thing is that if you can get a special purpose district that just provides you what you really want, which might be water and sewer or might be fire service, or if that's provided by the county, then why would you want to be in a municipality? municipality where you have zoning regulations and city taxes and all of those other inconveniences. So it's kind of a, um, a freedom issue, you know, um, um, minimum government. Uh, I'd rather live out in the county, pay lower taxes, have the sh county sheriff be my police department and have uh, the, the fire services that are often provided by counties. So if I can avoid being in a city, why not? Well, of course, one of the issues, perpetual issues in the city of Columbia are uh, the roads and the potholes, but so many of the city's streets are actually officially state highways. The city can't pay them. That's, that's right. That, that was that was. Remember that those the C roads that they they passed out money, and if you were you could, any road could become a state highway at the request of 
the legislative delegation if it was connected to two state highways. So this nice little suburban street I lived on for 46 years suddenly became a state highway. <laughs> well, and guess where it is on the need to be repaved or, or repaired list? <laughs> I, I can only no. imagine. <laughs> well, okay, let's go back to the question of civics in the schools. History is not really being taught in the, in the schools, but I can remember in the eighth grade, we actually had a civics class, and we talked about, it was not here in South Carolina, it talked about how state government worked, uh, how budgets worked, how, you know, congressional districts, everything, you know, for a year, it was not necessarily the most exciting class I ever took, but it, it, was, it was one where I, I learned a lot. I would like to say that the League has been attending naturalization ceremonies in Greer and in Charleston, and those people have to know a heck of a lot more about how government works in, in this country than the average citizen does. And sometimes people have looked at the test and said, I'm not sure I could pass that, including a recently elected senator from Alabama who referred to the three branches of government, the House, the Senate, and the President. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, there's... There's a, a lot of lack of information, and it's it, to me, if, if they're going to be voting, and I want them all to vote, but I'd like them to know a little bit about their government as well, and I think we just need to do a better job of teaching it. They do take a half a year of government in, in 12th grade, I believe, but I, I believe the civics has kind of got pushed aside to make room for other things. So when they call it government, what do they really mean, teaching government? Um, I think it's it's kind of, uh, it's, to the best of my knowledge, it's, I, I actually tutored somebody who was being homeschooled a couple of years ago, and it's basically about structure of government. It's not, uh, the first thing we did was register him to vote, by the way, so <laughs> so they, they, I think it covers some of the stuff that's in civics, but, it, you know, it may depend on the instructor. This was a homeschooling curriculum, and I had to deviate it from time to time to teach him things I thought were more important, uh, but... But I, I do think that they're, they're getting something, but they're getting it at the very end of high school. By that time, some of them are already registered to vote uh, or thinking of other things. And I think they need to get it earlier so they bring that understanding of government to their history classes and to their, you know, any, uh, any other social science classes or any other classes, even science, where there are policy issues, where they understand how decisions are made and implemented and what role they as a citizen can and should play in making those decisions. You know, I'd add in the PD area that it's been interesting. <clears throat> we have a strong thrust and a person that is devoted to this uh, of um, registering voters. And uh, in the public schools, for example, uh, the individual I'm referring to and myself went in at lunchtime where there was a cross-age and cross-grade mixing in a, um, well, in Darlington County schools. And that mixing uh, was great. You got people registered, even some of the cafeteria help. But if they don't study and do their homework and figure out uh, what this is all about, um, it's for naught. Um, registration without implementation or usage is uh, hollow. Yeah, and, and one of the things that the league's done statewide is vote 411. We even actually had billboards for it this year because we get candidates to put in their biographical information and their answer questions about issues, and then they, people can look at it, see what the race is, see where their polling place is, read about candidates. So we try to provide them information that will help them make thoughtful decisions. Well, o over the years, sometimes haven't you, I can remember, uh, candidates refuse to answer your questions. Uh, Go to my <laughs> website is what they would recommend. Yeah. We used to do the um, voter guides and uh, really publicize in our area newspapers, viewpoints, uh, mm -hmm. the league uh, 
assume the task of dividing and selecting the five questions, for example. But uh, this was not um, readily responded to uh, in recent years because people have their own website. Well, but they, if they if people go to the Vote Four One One website, and we have really high high interest in a lot of usage of that, and they see that some candidates have not chosen to answer. That also sends a message. Mm-hmm. Okay. It does. All, right. <laughs> All right, Holly. I, I was going to I was going to ask you about getting information out. You're, you've got your book that, on, on voting, uh, but you operate a website. Is that well? The league statewide. The league, op- oh, the league has has a statewide website, uh, and we have a number of publications on that website of information on various issues, including voting issues. We use Facebook. We use MailChimp for our members. We send the South Carolina voter to a number of people, non-members and members. It, it, it comes out quarterly. Uh, we had billboards for Vote 411, and we had a generous anonymous contributor give us $25,000 to uh, do radio spots in rural areas where they were less likely to have Internet access about how to register, how to vote and why it was important to do so. So we use every means of communication possible to get the word out when it comes to election information. Um, I don't know how much good it does, but we oh, we also have candidate events. We have, And normally we have them in person. We've been having Zoom candidate events this year <laughs> where we invite all of the candidates for a particular office, like everybody running for city council or uh, whatever. And, and so we've done those those events and, and getting really, really good response in terms of what they provided. My favorite was one. I'm, I actually... Uh, was the uh, I was running the show in in Westminster at the fire department, and they had ten candidates for city council. We'd never done anything in Westminster before, and the the fire chief kept coming in and throwing people out because it was overcrowded. So they've got to find a better venue for it. But uh, they were so grateful, and 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 it really helped them because they only had three seats and they had ten candidates. It, it was it was really useful. So. The league organized that? Oh, yes. The league's been doing that for as long as I can remember. We've always had Mm. – one time we had 17 people running for three seats in the Clemson City Council, and it was – it was kind of a, a, a wild ride, <laughs> but but yeah, and 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 candidates are pretty good about responding. Uh, not so much um, other higher level. Frequently, the ETV will do the ones for you know Senate, governor, and things like that. But we've we've done them too for primaries. Uh, and one of the things we do with primaries, because we're nonpartisan, is if there's one Democrat and three Republicans running, which is not at all uncommon, we invite all four of them for the primary so that they can all, you know, interact with each other and with their potential opponent. And that way we don't need to have one in the fall. And it's it just it, it seems more efficient. They're all going, looking for the same office and, and so they can answer the same questions. All right. One of the things that when you talk about getting the getting information out is the pandemic has really had a very negative impact on the print media, on county newspapers and mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Um, so the fact that you're now using the internet, uh, I think is very positive, but in a state where there's still a lot of rural population, um, it's hard to get. It's hard to get the word to people. It is, and, and, and the new Zoom meetings—that's a problem because both in my church, which has virtual services, and the league, which has virtual meetings, it makes it more accessible to people who don't want to drive or don't want to risk the being out. So there are people coming in on Zoom that would not come in in person even without the pandemic. But then there's a lot of people who don't have good internet access or any internet access, and they're kind of excluded. So it's a, it's a real challenge. Many groups, not just the league, are going to have to face in the months ahead. One of the issues that that many school districts are facing is that children don't have computer access. The league has been very concerned about this issue. Uh, I know my own league had a program last November, and the January program at our annual lead 
the Education Advocacy Day also featured uh, a school superintendent in Fairfield County, a teacher of the year, and an expert on technology and access so that we can look at what has happened in terms of uh, shifting kids to online education and <laughs> when their parents are working from home uh, and, and, it's, and how difficult it is and what we can do to at least increase the technology access but also address the needs of students, the ones that are most affected by our younger children, special needs children, and Eng ESL, English as a Second Language, those, those three groups really need to have in person to the extent it's feasible. Well, and of course, even if people have, uh, children may have computers, if they don't have the Wi-Fi access, yeah. it's, it doesn't do them any good. And I know in Columbia, around the public libraries, people, kids were bringing their, doing their homework from there because they couldn't do, literally could not do it from home. And they put, they put school buses in rural areas as Wi-Fi hotspots so kids could congregate around the school bus and do their homework there or get their instructions. So, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a national challenge, but it's particularly hard in South Carolina with a lot of rural areas and a lot of poor areas that don't have the access. Ladies, I need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Dr. Holly Ulbrich and Dr. Sheila Haney about the League of Women Voters celebrating its 100th anniversary. Holly, you're getting ready to to go out of office uh, as 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 co-president, and where do you see the league? going in the next year or two under your successors? Um, I think there's going to be a, a lot of concentration on making democracy work in, in several respects. I've already talked quite a bit about about the voting issues, of the the voting equipment, the voting process, the, ex, you know, the making it more accessible in many ways. But the other one is, is oversight. Um, we've been involved in this last year on uh, utility issues, and, and the, we have tended to neglect the regulatory function. Of course, as an economist, that's very dear to my heart. And so I did, you know, I helped with the organization of the protest at the Duke Rake hike, and we've been involved in the Sandy Cooper issue. So I, th I think anything that's good government, we're concerned about judicial reform, we're concerned about campaign finance reform, we're concerned about ethics reform, uh, we're concerned about home rule, as we've already discussed, we are concerned about the balance of authority that's heavily concentrated in the legislature uh, to the detriment of the executive and judicial branches. Um, we don't we don't want to throw out the 1895 Constitution, but it could stand some more revisions for a contemporary society. So I think those are big focuses. At the same time, we are concerned about, as Sheila said, all those other issues. I'm, as an economist who's worked, spent a lot of time on education funding, uh, the way we fund education is very inequitable and inadequate. Um, the, uh, the prison reform, uh, the school-to-prison pipeline, uh, gun control, women's reproductive rights, all of those things are important. But the central purpose of the League is to make democracy work and empower voters. Okay. Well... That is a perfect segue into, let's go back 100 years ago. Okay. The ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920. And what would you two ladies just tell us the milestones in terms of the League over the past 100 years? And we can, they can be national milestones or they can be South Carolina milestones. Why don't we go back and forth? Sheila, you, you pick a couple and then I'll pick a couple. Okay. And I'm thinking um, actually awareness is a big key word. Uh, people educated may not have known about the league. Uh, people who have issues and want to see um, thoughtful um defenses of these issues uh, is important. I see the League as being uh, sometimes for some members uh, a print 
copy. But we're moving more and more away from that and uh, actually talked at a recent state meeting about uh, how many issues should we put out for those who need, uh, you know, how much is it going to cost us and is it serving its purpose. But we also have um, just the need to... uh, to be out there to use every device we can, uh, even the um, the yard sign that I'm reluctant to use. But however you can share this at civic meetings, in media, uh, multimedia at that, um, and refer people to good reading, uh, good articles, good issues that have been discussed, uh, I have used my Sunday school class when I shouldn't probably, but uh, it is uh, a uh, an awareness thing. I think key for me. Okay. I, I like. I think the National League had a lot of influence in the '30s on labor legislation and on on Social Security. The first woman cabinet member was Frances Perkins, and she was very open to hearing women's voices and women's concerns about about occupational safety and health. Um, the the um, I think the the league was was uh, very important in South Carolina in revising the 1895 Constitution, uh, which was way overdue. We didn't get nearly as much home rule as we wanted, but we got a lot of other things cleaned up because it was it was pretty problematic. Um, I think we've had a very important role in over the years in environmental legislation, environmental issues. It's something that, even though it's a very conservative state, there's there's conflicting interests around environmental protection. There's beachfront property owners versus people who want to do offshore drilling. There's a, a water issue that we've been dealing with in both with Georgia, with the Savannah River, and with North Carolina, not giving us enough flow to the the the, the uh, the, sta- the state to their south. Uh, there's been air quality issues. The league nationally played a really important role in the Clean Air Act, and and we've tried to protect it here. And water water quality, water safety, lots of environmental issues. Uh, so I would say our big, the other one, big one is education, and and we've worked very very hard because we have so many league members who are current or former. Uh, public school educators that are informed and interested and and stay on the case of the legislators to particularly to meet needs of the ne- neglected students and those may be ESL students who don't are still learning English or students with poverty who come to school on empty stomachs or uh, people who just have learning disabilities and so there's been a lot of work done by the league that's made some incremental reforms in the way we deliver education and particularly to the students who are most in need so I'd say education environment uh, uh, criminal justice are, are big ones for the league but always always central has been the vote and I think that's that's where we've made a big difference people feel empowered because they know where they can get nonpartisan information they they know that they and 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 we work very closely with the election commission. So we we recommend their website. They recommend our website. There's the voter voter service and, and voter awareness is always central. We provide information about issues. We provide information about candidates, and we encourage people not just to vote, but to listen and to respond and to be engaged. And that's that's where we've always made a difference. All right. You made a very interesting statement. You work with the various election commissions and boards. Yes. Uh, could you say a little bit more about that? Well, uh, we actually have a member of our state board who serves on the State Election Commission right now. We're very excited about that. And uh, in Pickens County, we have a member of our league who serves on the Election Commission. But we just we just contact them all over the state. We go up and say, hi, we're the League of Women Voters. Our job is to make sure people know how to vote, get to vote. We have the same purpose here. How can we help you? We recruited poll workers. We recruited observers. Uh, we attended the certification hearings. I mean, they, and it was most of, I don't know, about, can't speak for every area, but the ones I've heard from were very, very pleased at, that somebody cared about their work in a nonpartisan way that, that they were doing a good job and, and noticed it. All right. How many local leagues are there in the state? Uh, 
Sheila, you're in, in Darlington County. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, Holly, I guess the question goes to you. How many other cities or counties where, where there are leagues? I know there's one here in Columbia, Richland County. It's called yes. the Columbia area. Thirteen. Thirteen. And, and some of them serve single counties. Some of them serve multiple counties. Our newest one is in York County. And we have about... 1,300 members statewide. Okay. And, of course, the folks in York County are facing uh, municipal expansion from an urbanization from sure. across the border. Yes. They're, they're, yes, they're very much a, a bedroom uh, county, but there are people who work in Charlotte and live in that county, and there are people who actually live in Charlotte, but are more interested in North York County. So that cross-border issue is kind of an interesting one for them. You know, I would add that uh, it is uh, true, I think, of League Anywhere. People uh, make their choices. They have preferences. One person might be uh, strongly an advocate for environment. Another might be involved in more civic uh, issues, perhaps as a... um, I don't want to say politician, but as a representative of other citizens. But the thing that um, I think is also unique with League, we have what we call portfolios, and there are specialties for members can be a particular portfolio. So the, the local leagues as well as the state leagues have these various portfolios. Yes. Yes, they do. And, and two, two of the most effective people for us recently are both members of the league, both men, both computer science professors, Duncan Bell at USC and Matt Saltzman at, at Clemson. Uh, Matt's actually doing research into redistricting, and they were invaluable in helping people understand what's going on with redistricting and why they should care about it. Again, go, let's go to your website. Are the portfolios listed there? The positions are listed there. There's some areas where we don't have an active portfolio person like child welfare, uh, but you can find all of our positions. And we have a full-time volunteer lobbyist, whom you may know, Lynn Teague, who is just invaluable in finding specialists when she needs them, testifying on a variety of issues. And if you contact the state league, if they don't have an expert on hand, they can probably help you find one. Mm -hmm. And she's a presence here in Columbia. Well-respected. I think she um, is, well, I know she's a volunteer, but I think she's active every day. Sheila, how long have you been associated with the league? (laughs) I thought about that before I came, since I've been an adult. And I was from a feminist uh, background, both paternal and maternal. And, uh, you know, it it just filled my cup. (laughs) Okay. And... Holly, what about you? Well, I was introduced to the League when I was a graduate student at the University of Connecticut. The local president was an instructor in the economics department, and I I, I sort of carried that in my head. And then when we left Connecticut, I didn't join them, but when we left Connecticut, I spent a year in the Springfield, Ohio League, and I said, this is a cool organization. When when we moved to South Carolina, I'm going to join the League, and I came down, and there wasn't one. So (laughs) I organized the Clemson League in 1968, and I have the official title of Founding Mommy. And we were all so young, we had to have a babysitter for board meetings. So I have been a 53-year member of the League, and I've served on and off on state board since the 70s. And, and as I said earlier, my, my, great, my great-grandmother marched for women's suffrage in 1915. My mother, She had three grandchildren. My mother was the youngest, and my mother was a political junkie. She spent her time in assisted living and in the nursing home in her, her later years watching C, not only CNN constantly, but even C-SPAN, which is like watching paint dry. (laughs) That's being kind. (laughs) Okay. Ladies, I hate this, but Alfred's giving me the wind-up signal, and so I'm going to ask you for last words, and Sheila Haney, I'm going to ask you to go first. Any last words for our listeners today? Thank you. I think, again, I mentioned awareness, but uh, we cannot oversell the uniqueness of our organization. It's purposeful uh, then, now, and in future. Okay. 
and Holly Albrick. Can I just plug the book a little bit? Uh, it's In Her Shoes, A History of the League of Women Voters of South Carolina, 1920 to 2020. And incidentally, my oldest daughter, who is a league member and a graphic designer, designed the cover. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and and, uh, and it's, uh, I think it's a fun read. It's a romp through, uh, through what's going on and what has gone on in, in government in South Carolina. And it's... it's um, its predecessors uh, in the suffrage movement. All right. Well, Dr. Holly Ulbrich and Dr. Sheila Haney, I want to thank you both for being with us today on The Journal. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Our pleasure. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. It was an informative session talking with the current co-president of the South Carolina League of Women Voters and a former president and also author of A History of the League about the origins of the League, the struggle for women's suffrage, and for the last hundred years, the role that the League of Women Voters has played in informing us as South Carolinians about issues regardless of political party. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.